trusted in God because of Jesus, but we have access to all the power that is His. We have direct access into the throne that controls everything about this universe. And that not only has He allowed us into His presence, He invites us in. He wants us there. He loves when we bring to Him our needs and show that we trust He is, he is capable of meeting them for us. So now, having celebrated the gospel together in our songs, would you join me as we pray the gospel together to our Father? Our hearts long, O Father, for the day when faith will be turned to sight. And we long for it because our faith is weak. Believing your promises that they're more than just words is a daily struggle for us. We show this struggle in the fact that we continue to sin as if our sins had not taken Jesus to the cross. We continue to give ourselves over to doubt, to, to greed and envy, to worry and anxiety, to lust. The promise of your gospel is that Jesus Christ is holy God become man to bear our blame. And in that promise, we have the offer of a new life here and now. A life that we want to claim, that we want to enjoy, to savor. A life that we want to live to the glory of your name. And for that, we need your power. While faith waits for sight, we need your power. You've promised that you have not left us without a a helper. That your spirit would come and give us the ability to love you as we ought to and to love each other as those who are secure in you. And so we claim this promise of your spirit and we ask that you would change us into the image of Jesus by that spirit. That you would give us souls that are at rest, that are still, that we can sing and mean it. Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say that it is well with my soul. And Jesus, all of your promises to us are yes. Give us the stillness of soul that will mark those who believe it. We pray to you each week for the gospel's advance. We pray to you that it will advance in our hearts, that it will conquer every rebel power that's in us, that it will root out every ounce of unbelief and give us joy and peace. We also pray for your gospel's advance to those who don't know Jesus. Every week we want to frame our prayers based on the priorities of the Bible. The way your servants there have prayed. And they pray for the churches to see fruit from their ministry. And so like Paul, we pray today for our partners here in our city. 
for those churches that are faithful to the gospel and are preaching it even now this morning. We pray for the village chapel just a block away from us. We pray for those who are hearing the gospel there today that you would stir up their hearts to receive those promises, to love what they hear. I pray for Jim as he speaks. Give him clarity. Give them joy in their worship as they sing to you. We pray for, uh, for Frank at First Baptist as he prepares to preach and for those who will hear him today that they would love the gospel more because of the, the word that he preaches. We pray uh, for our friends at Green Hills Church. In particular, we pray for them as they are in a fundraising campaign to, to overhaul a new building they've been given. We, we see the gift of the building to them as answers to our prayers for them over the years. And we thank you for that. And now we ask that you would give them the resources they need to, to make it the best facility it can be. We pray the same thing for our partners up in Madison at Resonate Church. Thank you for this new building that you have, you have put into their path. We pray that they would raise the money they need to, to, build, to, to buy it and to, to outfit it in the way that they need to. Thank you for the way you've already answered our prayers for them bringing people who don't know Jesus into their body and, and showing them the gospel clearly in a way that's compelling. Thank you. Thank you for the testimony they are giving in Madison that the gospel's promises are enough even when life is, is difficult. We pray you would continue to, to strengthen them in their witness. Help Shane as he preaches even today to be clear, to be powerful, to be moved by the Spirit. Finally, we pray for some of our partners serving around the world, taking the gospel into places where it's never even been heard before. Today in particular, I pray for Ruthie Janikin in in the Philippines. Right now she may be sleeping. I pray that you would give her rest, that you would strengthen her body for the work that she has left to do. Thank you for protecting her so far, as we've asked you to. And we pray that she would see fruit from her evangelism there. That as she travels upriver into these villages where Jesus has probably not been named. You would give her boldness and confidence. You would give her words um, a winsomeness about them when she speaks. We pray the same thing for our friend Allison Mobley in India. We pray that now as she's getting settled in to her new home and trying to desperately to learn the language that you would give her a supernatural ability to think clearly, to remember so that she can speak the gospel in the language of her people as quickly as possible. We want, we want to see her protected from isolation and culture shock in the meantime. I pray that you would help her to know we are for her and with her and thinking of her. We pray also for uh, Janine Davis, one of our members who's now serving in Southeast Asia. Thank you for everything you've done to answer our prayers so far, getting her there safely, protecting her so far. Now, now we ask you to help her to learn the language. That's her big hurdle right now. We know that. We know it is the key to so much of what she wants to be able to accomplish there. And so we ask that you would help her. Give her a supernatural ability to learn language. That is not too great for you. We know that. And in the meantime, protect her from frustration, from anxiety and fear. Now, Father, we turn to your word. Because in it, there is gospel for us. And we want to hear it, understand it, and love it this morning. And so we turn ourselves over to you. Because we can't muster 
the kind of response we should have to this word unless your spirit does it for us. We are dead. We are dead in, in heart. And our eyes are colored by our sin. And we need you to cut through that so that we can see and love what you've said to us in your word. Would you do that for us, Father, we pray? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be back in Isaiah, this time in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there. Um, If you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got Bibles for you. They're on the the center aisle down on the floor, uh, and you can flag somebody down sitting over there, and they can pass one to you if you don't have one. Um, We're actually coming now to the home stretch in our series through Isaiah. If this is the first time that you're with us, we've been in Isaiah since the beginning of the year, about a 20-week series where we're just sort of dipping in to key passages to get a flavor of what this book is all about. It's a huge book that would take years to go through all, uh, to go through the whole thing verse by verse. And so we've been trying to get at the main message of Isaiah, taking passages that, that communicate the message that's communicated in other passages as well and do it in a really uh, clear and quick and, and efficient way. And just by way, of, now as we turn to this, this home stretch, this final section in our series, um, bear with me if you've heard this before, but I want to make sure that we go back to our sort of overarching structure for the series so it won't seem like we're just pulling this stuff out of thin air. There's a reason each of these texts is being chosen, and I want to make sure that that's clear one more time as we turn into the fourth and the last section of our series. What we've said about Isaiah at the beginning is that it's not like a letter of Paul, for example, that's maybe a little more familiar to us, where, where he writes it with sort of a thesis and he develops it step by step through in a pretty linear way from beginning to end. Isaiah, like a lot of the prophets and like a lot of the Bible's poetry, is really kind of cyclical. Uh, not even cyclical, even. It, it, it's just, I, I would say scattered, but that, that would actually sound pejorative and it's not meant to. And, and there's a, there is a really amazing structure underneath it that is in the Hebrew that we just haven't even tried to uncover. It's not, it's not that it's scattered. This author knew what he was doing. It's that the themes occur in... Um, in in a, in a way that appears to us to be scattered. They come all over in the book. What we've tried to do is isolate what those themes are and then put our own structure to this series so that you can see those themes clearly. What we wanted to do is kind of give you a listening guide for Isaiah because we're really just scratching the surface and we want to empower you to read Isaiah more fruitfully in your own personal Bible reading from here on. And we're trying to give you a listening guide. The, the sort of things you're going to hear as you read through this book, and you're going to hear them over and over again. Now, here's the analogy that we've used that I got, I ripped it off from somewhere. Uh, uh, I won't, I don't remember exactly where it was, but I, this is totally not my analogy, but it, I think it works. The analogy we use, have been using is, is that Isaiah communicates something like a surround sound speaker system. With a surround sound speaker system, you've got multiple channels that are often devoted to communicating certain kinds of sounds. So you'll have like a center channel right at the middle near the TV. And a lot of times that, that's got dialogue that's coming out of there. And you'll have channels that are kind of on either side of the TV, and those are for background noises. You know, the car that starts in front of your view and then zooms behind you, and all of a sudden this, this speaker back here picks that one up and communicates that kind of sound. Or, you know, bullets that are zipping all around you if you're watching a war movie or something. Isaiah communicates a lot like that, where you're, you'll go from one channel to another in in patterns that are unpredictable to us as, as readers who can't see all the underlying structure to it. 
What we wanted to do is try to identify the speakers and what kind of information you're likely to hear from those speakers so that as you're reading through the whole book, you can see it. We identified four. There's really four main kinds of information that we wanted to introduce you to in Isaiah. First, information about God. God is the main subject of this book from beginning to end. And it offers us some of the Bible's most beautiful and most vivid descriptions of who God is and what he's like. It describes God as unmatched, as the one and only, the God who made everything that is, the God apart from which there would be nothing, the God who is holy because he's transcendent above everything that he's made, who's holy because he's perfectly moral and right in everything that he does, that he's untouched by any sin or, or the kind of selfishness that, that we have in ourselves. He's holy because his love is not like our love. Because this God turns to those who rebel against him with love and not only with judgment. He does judge evil, but he also absorbs the cost for saving sinners. That's the God that Isaiah has introduced us to. All through this book, some of the most beautiful pictures of God that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. The next thing, the next speaker, is information about us, about humans. Using Israel especially, because that's when and to whom the book was written. But it, it, it's, it's timeless truth about what's, what's true of all humans everywhere. What we've seen has not been a pretty picture. That, that really you could boil down the human failure as a failure of trust. That the God that this book has presented us with, the God who made everything and who is defined so, so greatly by his love for us and his desire to provide for us and for us to trust in him has been rejected over and over again by Israel. They just don't trust him. And we've seen how that's true in our experience too. How we've, we've also seen what we're likely to trust instead of this God. Idols that we make with our own hands things that, that we establish for ourselves as better able to provide for us to give us meaning or purpose in life. We've seen a third speaker, if you will, a third channel, communicating all this beautiful content about what God has done to save us from ourselves, from the sin we've chosen over him. We talked about redemption a lot. In fact, that's been the longest section in our series, partly because Isaiah is just full of amazing passages about redemption and what it looks like. It, it looks like the God who was rejected not allowing that rejection to define his relationship with his people, but overcoming their rejection of him, coming to them, running after them, and winning them back, even though they deserve what they got. It looks like God not allowing their guilt to stand, but giving them a new identity, not allowing their dissatisfaction and all the things they turn to over him to define their lives, but giving them satisfaction in him, the satisfaction he alone can give them. It looks like him replacing the stains of all that they've done with a clean and, and brand new slate that's possible because he, in the servant, has suffered in their place. And this redemption will bring in a new world. A world that is perfect and unblemished by sorrow or death or sin. That's the picture we've been drawing from Isaiah of what God is going to do to handle the fact that we have sinned against him. And now we come to the, to the fourth and the last kind of information that's communicated in, uh, all through Isaiah in, in various places. It's information about how we should respond to God's word. Because, honestly, it's, this is only good news that God has made a solution for sin if it's good news we can grab a stake in, right? If this is good news for somebody else, it's not good news, and not good news for us, then that changes how we read the whole book. I mean, an analogy I've used before is that it, it, when I hear somebody's won the lottery, it does nothing for me. It's good news for them, but it's not good news for me. It does, it does nothing for me. And, and even if it was me who had won the lottery, it would be 
not good news unless I was told how to go claim the winnings, right? I need to know what to do, how to respond to this good news before it's actually even really good news. So the last thing we want to do in the next four weeks is look at the way that Isaiah calls for Israel to respond to the news that God has made a solution for their sin. Because in the way he calls Israel to respond, we see how we're to respond to the same truth that cuts across all these years, all these cultures to us. A promise that in Jesus, the suffering servant, God has made a solution to our sin. What are we supposed to do with that? Today we get to the heart of it, really. Today is, t- today's passage is meant to show us the core response to what God has done to save us. In the future weeks, we're going to be teasing out different dimensions of it, but today is the core. And just like we saw that the, the core of Israel's and our problem is a failure to trust in God, that everything else trickles down from failing to trust that God is who He says He is, so the core to our response to Him is reversing that. It's a trust in God. What it looks like for us to claim the promise that God has written a new identity for us, that He has wiped clean the record of sin that was ours. What it looks like to claim that is trust. And one of the best examples of what it looks like to trust is in Isaiah 36 and 37. This is one of the only places in Isaiah where the author shifts out of the poetry that we're used to to unpacking together and into prose. He shifts from oracles, speeches, usually from God to the people that, that either, either Israel or the nations, into talking about a story. It's, it's really a, a, a beautiful and compelling story. It's history. It's history with amazing parallels in what we know about the ancient Near East from other sources besides the Bible. There's incredible parallels between what we're going to look at today and what you could find in your Western Civ class in, in, in freshman undergrad. Uh, they, the same things are talked about there that are talked about here in the Scriptures. But the Scriptures use this story in a particular way to show us what it would look like for us to claim the promises that God has made to us in Isaiah. That's what we want to do. We want to unpack it. Now, now here's the thing. It's two chapters long. Uh, that, it, it's a lot of text. We're not going to read it together. Normally we would stand together in honor of God's Word. We would read Today we're going to honor God's word by listening carefully and trying to digest it well. And I'm going to walk you through the story. Basically, I'm going to tell you the story today. And then at the end, we will, talk, we will sort of step back and try to see how we can responsibly get something for us from the story without spiritualizing it or, or writing it off. But, but first, we want to just understand the story. We want to see it as it unfolds to appreciate the drama in it and the way that the actors are responding to the situation. And for that, I'm just going to be your guide. And we'll go into the text together at some key places and read it and read from it then. So hopefully you found that. Again, if you need a Bible, you're going to want one today because we're going to be we're going to be walking through this together. If you need one, we've got some here at the middle of each aisle, uh, and you can you can turn to Isaiah chapter 36. That's where we're going to start. Really, there's three steps to this story. Act one, Act two, Act three, if you will. They revolve around three different characters. Act one is mostly about the king of Assyria and the challenge that he makes to Israel's faith. It's about him as the king, the, the king of the greatest empire that part of the world had ever known. Act 2 is about king, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, how he would respond to the challenge that the king of Assyria had made to him. And then Act 3 is pretty much all about the king of the universe, about God showing himself to be the one true God of everything that is. That's Act 3. We're going we're gonna to go through these as trust-challenged, trust-illustrated, 
and trust rewarded. Those are our three acts. Let's start with trust challenged. This is in chapter 36. I mean, in the middle of this big poetry section, it's like, it's like Isaiah just plops this story right down in the middle with, with almost no warning. Um, in, in a sense, it's not out of nowhere. The, the previous 20 chapters or so, which we haven't really looked at in detail, are mostly Isaiah talking about the nations and all of the sort of political maneuvering that was going around Judah at that time with the nations jockeying for power and fighting with each other and, and, and Isaiah speaking, to the, speaking judgment to them because they were putting themselves in the place of God. And Isaiah calling to Judah not to trust in them. Don't think that they can, that they can provide for you in the way that God can. So, so this story, it's not poetry. It does sort of plop down in the middle, but it, it's also connected to the message Isaiah has been saying. It's sort of a, a capstone on what he's been saying for the last 20 chapters or so. Still, it, it would be nice if, if this were a movie, if, if we're setting up the opening stage or the opening scene and, and you've got those like white letters on the screen like saying, it was the year 1520. So-and-so was on the throne of England. You know, something like that. Some British accent, voiceovering, getting you updated on where we are. I'm going to try to play that role for you today, uh, sans accent. I do want you to know, I, I want to read the, the first three verses and then, and then talk about the setting. Because I think you're going, to need, you're going to need it if you're going to get what's coming later in chapter 36. Let me read the first three verses, then I'll, I'll set them up for you. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. I think the place to start, the first thing we need to notice is the location for this meeting. Maybe it sounded familiar to you. The meeting goes down at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, this is your first Sunday with us. This won't resonate. If you were here about two months ago, hopefully this sounds a little bit familiar. This is the exact spot for an earlier meeting between Isaiah and King Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. Chapter 7 tells this story. Chapter 6 and 7. This is the story of Ahaz's failure to trust in God. At the time, the threat wasn't Assyria. The threat was, was Israel to the north. During this time, the, the kingdom of Israel, originally one kingdom under David, had split in two through a, like a civil war. The northern part was called Israel and the southern part was called Judah. And this action is happening in Judah. Well, at the, at, at the time, in chapter 6 and 7, the first meeting at the Washer's Highway or whatever, Washer's Field Highway, the threat was that Israel to the north and Syria, also up to the north, had joined together in alliance. They were going to try to fight off Assyria, and they wanted Judah to help them. And Judah refused. They were trying to stay neutral. Ahaz didn't want to get into that, play that game. And so Israel and Syria were threatening, and they were going to come and take over Judah Get rid of Ahaz, put a new king in place that would be more friendly to them. So Isaiah comes to Ahaz, the king, and says, don't worry about them. Do not turn to another nation for an alliance to protect you from Israel and Syria, or you will pay for it later. Ahaz chose not to trust God. He chose not to trust that God was enough to protect Judah. And he goes into an alliance with Assyria. Isaiah predicted then... 
that the chickens were going to come home to roost. And that's exactly what's happened now. Because within a generation, Assyria has become the greatest, most powerful empire that this part of the world had ever known. You read about Assyria in your Western Civ classes. This is, this is, this is basic Western civilization history right here. Assyria rises to become the greatest empire this world had ever known, this part of the world. And, and sure enough, one by one, the, the nations around Israel, around Judah, had fallen. And now, one by one, Judah's most powerful cities were falling to Assyria. Isaiah had predicted that if you trust in Assyria, one of these days, like a flood, they're going to come over your land and wash it out. And that's exactly what's happened. When when the messengers from Sennacherib meet with the messengers from Hezekiah, it happens at the exact same place that Hezekiah's father failed to trust in God, and that's not an accident. Because what we're meant to see here is that this is the same stakes and ultimately the same fundamental underlying issue. Are you, as God's people, going to trust in a different way than those who are not God's people would trust? Does it look any different for God's people to be threatened by crisis, by powers that they can't control, than it looks for any other nation, any other people, to be threatened by powers out of their control. That's the question this story is meant to answer. It's same stakes, same call to trust, and this time an altogether different result. Now, that's getting a little bit too far down the road. For now, what you need to know is that it's hardly a given that Hezekiah would be any more trusting than his father. Now, this story just plops down in the middle of Isaiah, but in 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, which tells the story of a lot of the things that happened to the kings of Judah, the same story is told there with more detail. And what we're told is that before this this meeting happens, Hezekiah has been playing all, all his cards. He has been trusting in the Lord in a, to a sense, but in, in, in one scholar's uh, framing of it, he's also been trying to keep his powder dry, right? He's working every angle that he's got. What, the, what Kings tells us is that he, for example, tried an alliance with Egypt, that he tried to get them on his side to help fight off Assyria, and that Egypt tried one time, and they got wiped out. They were no match for Assyria. Egypt had come back to bite him. Well, then he tries paying off Assyria. When our story takes place here, we're told that these, these messengers from Sennacherib come up from Lachish, which was, or Lachish, which was one of the, the most powerful cities near Jerusalem. It was a fortified city that, was, uh, that guarded the approach to Jerusalem from the sea. So it was one of these places that if you didn't take Lachish, you'd never be able to take Jerusalem because you'd, be, you'd always be vulnerable to an attack from behind your lines. Um, if you go to the British Museum, you'll see uh, several amazing... Uh, what are called reliefs from this period. They're, they're uh, carvings in clay, I believe it is, that, that the great kings like Sennacherib would, have, would, would put on display in their palaces to show their great victories. And, and one, of the, one of the most important ones that still survives, it's in that museum, you go look at it today, is, is what happened when Assyria came up against Lachish and took it. So, so that's where, this, the, that's where these, these messengers come from, from Lachish. At the, exactly this time, Lachish is falling. And those, those reliefs show them being transported to Assyria, all of them, and the cities just wiped out and would be rebuilt for years and years later. And now the same thing is, is, is about to happen in Judah. Hezekiah, seeing that Lachish was falling, had sent money down there, tried to buy off Assyria. He thought, you know, if, if my alliance with Egypt isn't going to work, maybe I can pay him off. Even 
took things from the temple to, to pay him off. And the king of Assyria took the money and came to Jerusalem anyway. Stabbed him in the back. So now Hezekiah's played all his cards. He's got nothing left. And Assyria knows it. Now, what happens here in this meeting is, is an incredible, witty, sharp speech by this high-ranking military officer on behalf of Sennacherib to Hezekiah's men. I want to give you at least a taste of it. What's amazing about this speech to me is that he frames this issue. This Assyrian guy frames the issue at hand in exactly the same terms as Isaiah. It's almost like he's been reading Isaiah's prophecies and he uses those words to talk to to Hezekiah's men. In verse 5, the beginning of his speech, he frames the issue here as an issue of trust. He says, Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? See, he gets it. To rebel against Assyria, you've got to have something else that you're trusting in. Just like God said when he charged Israel, you have rebelled against me by trusting in Syria and Israel, or in, in Assyria to protect you from Syria and Israel. The issue is rebellion and trust. It's a political issue, who you're going to trust in. The Assyrians get that. And then from verse 6 on, he just knocks over all potential trusts that they might have. He's like, well, you're going to trust in Egypt? You're going to trust in Egypt? You see what happened with Egypt. We, we wiped them out. He describes trusting in Egypt as a, broken, as a broken reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Isn't that a great image? You want to trust in them, it's going to shatter and you're going to get splinters from it. You're going to be pierced by it. Not only is it going to be useless, it's going to come back to hurt you if you trust in them. And that's exactly what had happened. One of my favorite phrases, or one of my favorite uh, pieces to the puzzles in verse 8. You're going to trust in your own military power? Okay, I'll make a wager with you. Look at verse 8. Come, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. He's mocking them here. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. You get it? We'll spot you the horses if you can put men on them. You don't have enough men. You're going to trust in your military might? Look at us. An army of 185,000, you have no hope. Basically, he's knocking over anything that they might trust in. And in that sense, he echoes Isaiah. Because Isaiah all along has been saying, nothing else is going to hold you up. You got one hope, and that is that God is who he claims to be. Do you believe it? In fact, his, his charges against Israel, his, the, the, the Assyrians' mocking of Israel is, rings so true that Hezekiah's representatives ask him to stop speaking in Hebrew. They don't want the guys sitting back up there on the wall hearing what's being said, getting scared, and fleeing. They ask him to speak in Aramaic, which was the sort of diplomatic language of the region. And they refuse. He says, no, these guys are the ones who are going to have to die. Or in his words, these are the ones who are going to have to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. He's not kidding. This is what it came to when you had... when you put a siege onto a fortified city. You just starved them out. They're the ones who need to hear it. And it's at this point that the Rabshaka, this high-ranking military official, oversteps his bounds. Because it's when he starts speaking to the people who are back in the city up on the wall, telling them Hezekiah is deceiving them, that he actually challenges God himself. No longer is he saying you can't trust in Egypt, you can't trust in your own military power. He says... You can't trust God. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Look, he says, at all the gods of these other nations that we've conquered. We've burned them. They did nothing to stop what happened. 
Look at verses 18 to 20. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? In other words, your God is no different from the gods of other conquered nations. In other words, to go back to verse 5 that frames the whole thing, to trust in your God is to trust in mere words. They're just words. These promises that he's enough, that he can deliver you, words. In that sense, this speech from the, the Rob Shaka, this, this military guy, it strikes me as a remarkably modern challenge to religion, to faith. His challenge isn't that you know, our gods are better than yours. It's that we're just stronger. It's might makes right. And his challenge is that your God isn't real. That what you've got to rest on is just words. In the, in the 20th century philosophical sense of it, he's saying you, you basically got wishful thinking on your side and that's about it do you want to test it the real drama the the central drama of the story begins in chapter 37 this is where we see Hezekiah respond to the challenge that's been made by Assyria trust is illustrated here it's a remarkable response especially for this man Given how much he's been, been sort of trusting in God, sort of just trying to keep his powder dry, given how much he's worked every angle, his response is fascinating. He's got a lot to teach us. We're going to unpack it for ourselves in a minute. For now, I just want to unfold it for you, step by step. It's in three th- I, want to, I want to notice three things about his response. Three different aspects to it as it unfolds. The first is that his response is rooted in despair. Got to get this. His response, what's remarkable about it, what makes it effective, is that his response is rooted in despair. Chapter 37 opens with Hezekiah receiving the threats of the Assyrians. And what he does is he he tears his clothes. In his culture, that was the way you show desperation and absolute self-emptying, just helplessness. When you get bad news or sorrow, that's what you did. You just ripped your clothes. You put on sackcloth, the garb of mourning. And he went into the house of the Lord. Even then his faith seems to be not quite fully formed. He sends his men to Isaiah to get him to pray for them. Rather than just simply praying on on his own, he wanted Isaiah as if it might be more effective. It was was humbling, of course, because Isaiah had been telling him this was going to happen all along. And now now he's finally sort of thrown up his hands and saying, yeah, what you said has happened. What you said is that God was enough to deliver. Could you pray to, to him for us? See if he would act for us in spite of the way we've been faithless. I love about, what I love about Isaiah's response, which we won't read in, in detail, but occurs here at the beginning of chapter 37, is that he doesn't pray. When he receives Hezekiah's plea, what he does is basically says, you already have the message from God. He's already told you. Trust in me, you've got nothing to worry about. Trust in anything else and you're done. It's that simple. God's spoken. I don't need to ask him what he thinks. 
Trust in God and there is nothing that Assyria can do. Now skipping ahead a little bit, Hezekiah receives another letter from the Assyrian king. Basically reiterates a lot of what uh, the king's representative had come to say. But gets even more directly against God and and the, the prospect of trusting in him. Here's what the letter says. Verse 10 of 37. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. See, now he's challenging God. Not just trusting in God, but God himself. Don't let him deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? What Hezekiah does here, what shows is he has reached a place of despair, of absolute helplessness. He just takes this letter that he's gotten from Sennacherib of Assyria. He goes into the temple, he opens the letter and spreads it out, and he leaves it there. That's it. He has nothing. His only hope is that God hears this challenge and chooses to respond. He's a guy who has no strength left, nothing but a track record of unbelief, and he's literally at the end of his rope. So he just takes it straight to God. His prayer is rooted in absolute despair. And here's what he prays. The second thing to notice about his response, where his prayer begins, it's remarkable. His prayer is rooted in despair, we've said. But it's, it's centered on God and God's character. Look at his prayer. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. First thing he does is just talk about who God is. In fact, it's basically quoting from some of Isaiah's most beautiful passages about God. He's, he's acknowledging that God is who God claims to be. That he's the creator and the only creator of everything that is. He's transcendent above everything that he's made. But he's also the God of Israel. That this transcendent God over everything that is has committed himself in love to this one small, helpless, weak people. Who does that? What kind of God is this? He acknowledges that this God who is big enough to accomplish anything and loving enough to commit to a people that doesn't deserve it has made promises to the weak and the helpless and the sinful. He acknowledges that this God is over all the kingdoms of the earth. He says to God, acknowledges to him that that this king of Assyria is nothing compared to you, that you rule over him and he rules only at your pleasure and so long as you continue to allow him to rule. You are over the kingdoms of the earth. He starts with God and with what's true about him. That's amazing to me. Certainly not the way that I typically start my prayers. We're going to get to this in a minute, but this is a prayer that's not first and foremost about Hezekiah and his needs. It is a prayer that understands that the fundamental thing about this universe is the God who made it all and rules it by his will. Hezekiah starts there. His prayer is centered on God. This is a God who is not anybody's butler. Finally, third thing. Notice something about how Hezekiah does eventually get to his own needs in the moment. And that here, his prayer is not just 
rooted in despair, centered on God, but it's motivated by concern for God's glory. It's motivated by God's glory, first and foremost. Even, in, even presenting his own needs to God, he's motivated by God's glory. Look at what he says in verse 17 and 18, or verse, really 17 through 20. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. He's got nothing there. That's true. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and therefore they were destroyed. So now, the critical issue, verse 20. O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Basically, he's agreeing with the Assyrians' theology that the gods of the nations are no gods at all. They are handmade. They are reflections of us. They have no power. And they, because of that, were all destroyed. And now the central question of the hour is, is God, the God of Israel, no more than the God of the nations? Will he respond in any different way, or is he to be destroyed as well? Hezekiah gets that that's why this situation matters. More than anything related to him and his particular needs, this situation is a venue for displaying God's unique glory to the nations. And that's what, he con- that's what he's concerned about. In fact, he takes his own concern for his people, his desire to see them saved, and places it under that umbrella. Save us so that the world will know who you are, that you and you alone are God. God is not a means to his ends. Finally, someone in Judah has stopped treating God like the pagans treated their gods, which as a sort of genie in a bottle, if given the right sacrifices, rubbed in exactly the right way, obeyed in exactly the right particulars, they'll give you what you want. They are a means to your ends. Hezekiah has gotten rid of that faith. And now he says, I am for you. So save me to show who you are. He's concerned for God's glory primarily. And that's what turns the tale. The third act, trust rewarded, shows God protecting his people for his name's sake. The remainder of the chapter, verses, verse 21 all the way to 38, tells the rest of the story. And I think, especially in terms of the action of it, it is remarkably sparse. One commentator suggested that's because the drama's already happened. The point of the story, the real drama, is between Hezekiah and God and how he would come to grips with his own helplessness before the promises of God to deliver him. What we see, I wish we had time to get into this, we, we don't. There's this, amazing, uh, there's this amazing oracle from God to Assyria that starts in verse 22 and goes through verse 29. We don't have time to get into all the details Look at verses 26 to 29 to get the gist of it. Even this greatest empire the world has ever known is fully subject to the authority of the one true God. In fact, verse 26 says, I have planned from the days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. Your success is not due simply to the the lack of power in the gods of the nations you've conquered, but due to the fact that I have planned that you would do exactly what you're doing. I've been in charge the whole time. Continuing on, he, he shows that because of, that, that he knows every step that they'll take, verse 28, he knows 
Everything they do, nothing is hidden from him. And because, verse 29 says, you've raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I'm going to put my hook in your nose. I'm going to put my bit in your mouth. I'm going to ride you like a common mule back where you came from, and you can't do anything about it. That's God's response to the faith that trusts in him. And this is precisely what happens, according to the last paragraph. The records of Assyria, you know, I mentioned that, that the way they kept records a lot of times was in these, these carvings. And the records of Assyria note the siege of Jerusalem. Just like they note the siege of Lachish, and they have all these pictures of the people of Lachish being herded off into slavery, they describe the siege of Jerusalem that's being described here. But they say nothing about where it ended. What it says, what it records is, is Sennacherib's mocking phrase. He says that he has Hezekiah, king of Judah, caught like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. That's what it says. This is a, a document that you can, that's on display now in a museum in Chicago. I've got him like a bird in a cage right where I want him. And then after that, silence. The biblical account fills in what happened. The Assyrians weren't big on reporting their defeats. You can't blame them for that. But sparsely, directly, our passage tells us what happened. God resolves in verse 35 to defend the city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And in verse 36, we're told that the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And that when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. It's a powerful image for what it looks like for God to save people who've got nothing to bring to the table. While they slept without their help, with what seems almost just like the flick of his finger, God wipes out an unconquerable army like it's nothing. The final verses tell us that Sennacherib went on home. They tell us that 20 years later, praying in the temple of his handmaid God, Sennacherib was assassinated by some who wanted him gone and his son was put in his place. One noted the irony in this, in, this, in this way of concluding the story. Sennacherib goes up to the house of his God and he's assassinated. Hezekiah goes to the house of his God and he's delivered. The Lord reigns. Now, now, we're really out of time. But I at least want to point you in closing towards how we can bring this into our call to trust in God. These stories are never just random, right? They're not told for our entertainment, especially not when there's just, just a couple of them in the whole book. They are chosen on purpose because they illustrate something powerful and important. And we don't want to hyper-spiritualize these stories and make them just about what's true for us today. I mean, these events did happen, and they mattered in their own time and in their place, but I think at the very least what we can say is that this story is meant to illustrate for us what it always looks like for people who have nothing, who bring nothing to the table, to claim by faith God's offer to save them fully and completely. What, where, where the story goes on from here is not pretty. I mean, Israel's right back to their lack of faith and they end up getting shipped off into Babylon and it isn't pretty. This is not a happy ending story. This is only one little step in a much bigger story. But what, the reason it's told to us is that God goes from here in Isaiah 
to tell us of the servant who's coming, who will take on himself the sins of Israel and all those who will trust in God. Because their greatest threat was never Assyria. Their greatest threat was the fact that they could not muster a consistent trust in God. They were always turning their backs on him. And the God who would not allow himself to be mocked by the leaders of Assyria will not allow himself to be mocked by the disbelief of his people. Their sin was their biggest problem. And their sin is the problem God solved in the person of the servant. That's what we've been looking at the last couple months. So how do we claim this promise that the servant has taken our sin? It looks like Hezekiah's faith. It'll look like absolute despair. It will feel like death. It will feel like being surrounded by 185,000 soldiers with nothing. That's what it'll feel like for you to trust in God in the way that Hezekiah has. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to have God take you there to that kind of despair if it will leave you trusting in him more fully? That's what it's going to have that's what's going to have to happen. Justification by faith always feels like death. But it works. The last thing I'll say is that the certainty of the promises God has made to us has got to be grounded in God. I love the way that this Assyrian frames the issues because it's the way that me, my heart, and my doubt, I'm always wrestling with them. Anytime, what, what we've got vividly sort of presented before us in high definition are our sins, our guilt, our shame, our sorrow, and our pain. What we have from God in Isaiah and other places is the promise that that doesn't define us anymore. That God has taken those on as his own problems and wiped them clean so that we are not who we were. That's a promise that we have. But in the middle of it, it sounds like mere words. What we have against the vivid, tangible, tasteable, and touchable record of our own failure and pain is words. But like Hezekiah, the difference has everything to do with the identity of the one who has spoken the words to us. These would be mere words if I had spoken them to you. I don't have the ability to clean you from your past, to deliver you from what threatens you. But God can back them up. And the fact is that he has staked his name, his reputation to them to his promises to you. And he will not let you down. So we trust in him. That's the call. Father, this is a trust that we can't muster on our own. And so we ask you to help us. What we ask you for, not even knowing fully what this might mean, is that you would break us as you broke Hezekiah. That you would do what's necessary to break us so that we give up on trusting ourselves or any other power that promises to protect us and give us purpose. At best, these alternative trusts are broken stabs that will, that will pierce the hand of anyone who leans on them. They are handmade gods that will go burning with the rest of our lives when threatened by forces outside of our control. But you are the God of the universe, the Holy One of Israel. Help us to believe in you, we pray. Amen.